everyone. This is Jason Martin again. I'm uh, one of the leaders at the Vine Church, as well as a producer of the Vine podcast. I'm here to introduce this week's episode, which continues our series titled Affirming. Uh, This is the Sunday morning adult class discussing the practical and theological grounds for a church such as the Vine becoming a fully open and affirming church for LGBTQ members. If you have not heard the first two episodes, I would recommend checking those out, but that's not completely necessary in order to follow along today. And if you'd like to join us live, we would love to have you. Worship is at the Vine in Temple, Texas at 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, and classes for all ages follow at 11.15 a.m. This week, uh, we were blessed to have Tom Clark teaching the class about some of what's called the clobber passages in the Bible. These are passages that often are used to condemn same-sex relationships. Tom is a relatively new member at the Vine. Uh, He's only been uh, a part of our our church body for, oh, probably the last six months or so. Um, But he has become such a wonderful, active, insightful, and joyful part of our church. In the class today, he discusses the Sodom story from Genesis, as well as other passages from the Old Testament and why God's message for us may not be what we previously thought. Now, a word of warning, in this class, Tom discusses instances of rape in the Bible. And while there's nothing that could be described as graphic, if discussions of rape is something that you find distressing, then I would advise that you take caution. So with that said, here's Tom from this past Sunday morning. All right, well, good morning. All right, we've got a lot of material to cover. Um, I hope we, uh, I, I, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of fly by through some of this stuff. I'm going to uh, briefly touch on uh, some of it and so that I can get to it because these are more flyers that I'm going to be passing out to. So just, just for the record. So, um, uh, but we're going to do it. Okay, the first thing I'm going to cover is um, two stories. One's the Sodom story, which everyone's very familiar with. And then there's another story about the Levite man and uh, his concubine, which some of y'all may be familiar with and some of y'all may not, but they're very similar stories. But before I start upon those, I want to talk a little bit about Jewish customs, okay? And one of the, uh, a major custom in Jewish uh, tradition is hospitality. And in order to understand the Sodom story and the, 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 the story of the concubine, you have to understand the, the, the tradition of hospitality and the importance of hospitality in Jewish tradition. So we're going to cover a little bit of that in here. And I, I, I'm going to try to not be monotonous with some of the reading of this. I'm not going to read everything here, but I'm going to touch upon it, okay? And the, the sources that I have here are listed on the, uh, the text itself. Okay? In ancient Israel, hospitality was not merely a question of good manners, but a moral institution which grew out of the harsh desert and nomadic existence led by the people of Israel. 
the biblical customs of welcoming the weary traveler and of receiving the stranger in one's midst was the matrix out of which hospitality and all its tributary aspects developed into a highly esteemed virtue in Jewish tradition. Biblical law specifically sanctified hospitality toward the stranger who was to be made particularly welcome for you were strangers in a strange land. Leviticus 19.34 and Exodus 12.49 are examples of that. Foreign travelers, although not protected by law, could count on, on the custom of hospitality within Jewish tradition as well. In the pre-modern world, without ubiquitous hotels and rapid transportation, wayfarers were often dependent on those whom they encountered en route. Jewish communities traditionally provided for Jews passing through their locales whether they were indigent or simply in transit. The Talmud even says that welcoming guests is greater than welcoming the divine presence. There's lots of uh, biblical examples that are given. Abraham, when the, three, when the three strangers came to him, welcomed him, he prepared a feast, he brought them in, he gave them uh, refuge. Lot did the same thing when he brought the two, the two men that came into uh, the city, he brought them into his home. Uh, there's examples um, where Laban showed kindness to Jacob and to Eliezer. Um, uh, Jethro actually rebuked his daughters for not showing uh, uh, Moses hospitality when he was a stranger that came into their midst. There's a, Rahab was blessed because she, she gave the spies a refuge and gave them hospitality. And there's also other, other situations in the Bible where when, when hospitality was not shown, that they were cursed. And actually, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was practically wiped out because of the great inhospitality, which we were going to cover in the story coming up, uh, was, um, was done unto them. So we're going to go, uh, and, it all, and it also caused a civil war in that case. So we're going to go on to the next page, which is on the back side of uh, the front page. Um, from the scattered references, an idea can be formed of the manner in which a guest was received in ancient Jewish household and of the relations that existed between the guest and the host. The latter would go out to meet the stranger on his way and would ask no questions as to his name and condition until his first needs had been satisfied. On entering the house, he was given water to wash his feet, and a meal was then put before him, his animals being meanwhile attended to. During his stay, the host felt himself personally responsible for any injury that might befall his guest. On leaving, another, on leaving, another uh, repast was served, when a covenant was sometimes entered into by the guest and his host, and the latter again accomplished the stranger some distance on his way, accompanied the stranger some distance on his way. On his part, the guest blessed the host before taking leave and asked him whether he stood in need of anything. If the guest wished to remain in the clan or in the locality, he was permitted to select a dwelling place. The practice of hospitality did not decline with the changes in social conditions. Even in latter times when the Jews were settled in cities, the virtue was held in highest esteem. Isaiah preferred charity and hospitality to fasting. Job, in complaining of his misfortunes in spite of the fact that he had led a virtuous life, mentions, among other things, that he had always opened his door to the stranger. While, 
Eliphaz accounts for the misery which had befallen Job on the ground that he had not been hospitable. Ben Sirah, a famous rabbi, uh, lays down the rules for table manners for the guest and condemns in the strongest terms the habits of the parasite who takes advantage of the custom of hospitality. Now we're going to go into the story of Lot, having set up that. The story of Lot, um, Lot comes upon two strangers who have entered into the city. And as he comes there, he sees these two men and he tells them, come, come be guest in my house, okay? Come take rest and stay with me. You know, don't stay out here in the streets. And they said, no, we're going to be okay here. And no, but he insists. So they come with him to his house and he feeds them. He prepares a feast for them and he feeds them and, and they're getting ready for the night. When all of a sudden, it says that all of the men, young and old, gather around the house, okay? And I think I want to make an interesting point that never gets pointed out here. It says here, before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young. And then, this never gets talked about. It says, all the people... All the people from every quarter, and they called unto Lot. So it wasn't just the men that surrounded the house, but it was all the people of the city of Lot. So I think that's missed when we talk about the story of Lot. So it wasn't just the men that gathered there. It was all the people of the city too. And said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. Now, I'm, there's some people that bicker whether know, know them meant uh, a sexual thing or not. I'm not going to bicker about that. I think that's pretty obvious that that's what was going on here. And the word, the word that's being used here is a word called yada, which has sexual connotations in this sense. And so... Um, we're not going to argue about that, okay? But, so as, there, as Lot comes out and he's, and he's telling them, don't do this wicked thing, don't do this horrible thing that's come, these, these are guests in my home, these are, these are, they are under my protection, you know? This is a horrible thing that you're doing. He says, here, take my virgin daughters, you know? have your way with them, do whatever you want with them, but do not do this with these men who have come under my protection. I've, I've given them hospitality, okay? So, and we know what happens next. The men, they, they don't want that. They don't want that. The angels pull Lot back inside and they blind the men, okay? So next, we're going to go to Judges 19 with the Levite man and his concubine. A very similar story. The Levite man comes to the city of Gibeah, and while there, they're waiting in the in the square, and an elder an older gentleman comes to them and offers them protection into his home, and they come, and they he feeds them, and all the men of Gibeah surround the house and want to do the same thing. They they say, bring this man out so that we may we may know him, okay? And he says, don't do this to this. He's a guest in my house. He's, he's, he's under my protection. And he says, here, have my virgin daughter and his concubine, okay? 
but but they won't hear it. They they want the men. But the old but the but the Levite pushes his concubine outdoor outside, and all night long the men of the city rape the concubine, and they can hear her screaming all night long, and she comes and falls at the doorstep the next morning, and the Levite gets up and sees her laying there at the footstep and tells her to get up, it's time to go. Shows no compassion or anything like that until he finds out that she's dead. Then he's outraged. But the, the point I'm making here is that everyone makes it a point. It, it, back in the late or early 1800s, circuit writers went around and made this story about homosexuality and about sodomy. And it, there's no doubt that they were calling for sexual relations with the men, okay? But that's not what the story is about. Ezekiel, if we look down here at Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, it says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I, looked them, I took them away as I saw fit. Okay? There's no mention of homosexuality there. Men, men with men. And some may say it does talk about abomination. Okay? That's true. But in Leviticus, almost everything was an abomination. You know, cursing your parents, mixing linens mixing seeds and plantings, getting tattoos, and a whole host of other things. So you can take your pick there, what an abomination was in that sense. Okay? In the wisdom of Solomon, a lot of people don't realize this, but we, we have 66 books in the Bible. But originally, there were 71 books in the Bible. Okay? Um, but then the Protestant Reformation came about, and John Calvin and others decided that, that five of those books didn't fit into their ideology, so they removed them from the Bible. They're known as the Apocrypha, and they're kept in the Catholic Bible now. Okay, And I'm not here to debate whether those are actually Scripture or not. That's not my point. But this next quote is from one of the Apocryphal books that were in the original text. Okay? Um, and it says, and punishments came upon the sinners, not, not without former signs by force or thunders, and they suffered justly according to their own wickedness, insomuch as they used a more hard and hateful behavior towards strangers. For the Sodomites did not receive those whom they knew not when they, when they came. And when they're talking about Sodomites, they're talking about the, the citizens of Sodom. Okay, uh, did not receive those whom they knew not when they came, but they but these brought friends into bondage, and they were well deserved of them. And not only so, but pre preadventure some respect shall be had of those, because they used strangers, not friendly. But these very grievously afflicted them, and whom they had received with feastings, and were already made partakers of the same laws with them. So it's talking about them not being hospitable to them, people who were taken in as, as, as uh, under protection and were taken in to be, uh, to, 
as strangers, people who came into their towns as strangers, and they were given hospitality, and they took advantage of these people, and they abused them. And even Jesus makes reference to Sodom, and the issue is rejection of God's messengers. These 12, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who it is, who, who in it is worthy, and stay there until you leave. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And that's Matthew 10, 5 through 15. What is the reference in this gospel incident? There is no reference to sex, but there is a clear reference to rejection of God's messengers. The parallel between the gospel of Sodom is the closed heart that rejects the stranger, the wickedness that will not welcome God's heralds. That's an excerpt from what the Bible really says about homosexuality. Um, I think the, the point, I, I think there is a strong point to be made here that through, through these passages and through these scriptures that the Sodom story is really not talking about homosexuality, but it's talking about hospitality and the rejection of hospitality and the, the, the abuse of hospitality within these passages. That's what Ezekiel's talking about. That's what I believe Jesus was talking about, and I believe that's what wisdom is talking about. Um, and it's not, and, and, and I'll get, it, I'll, it'll become clearer as we get into some of the other handouts. But um, does anybody have any questions about this aspect right now? I think hospitality is because it's they didn't have they didn't have hotels they didn't have things like that and and one of the main emphasis that God put on was loving your neighbor you know loving and taking care of one another and the protection that um, that we had that they had of a people they were bonded together uh, as the Israelites were bonded as a people. They were God's chosen people and they had to take care of one another. There was so much hostility against them by the other, by the other nations, by the other people around them. So they, it, it was in showing hospitality, they were showing God's grace and God's love towards one another within their home. But, and there were dangers. There were dangers of living on the street. People would rob you, could kill you, could do all kinds of things as you go into these cities. There was no protection. So there was a sense of protection that needed to be, uh, that they were protecting people, bringing them into their homes from those dangers that were out there. All right. So the next, the, the next thing we're going to cover is verb tenses. Okay. One of the most important things to know about the Hebrew language is that their language is very difficult. We are so blessed to know the English language. Okay? When we when we say when we say that color is black. Black means black, okay? Or we say help, help means help, okay? But in the Jewish language, they have no vowels. Okay? So all everything they have is consonants. 
So I'm going to give you an example. On, on that page, you see I, gave, I wrote BRD on there. This is just an example. We're just going to act like the, the, those are Jewish words, a Jewish word. So this word can have all kinds of different meanings, okay? So what, is, what do y'all think BRD means? Bird? Okay. Does anybody else have a different? Huh? Broad. Broad. Okay. I wrote a few others here. Bird, beard, board, bread, braid, bard, broad. I mean, those are just a few that you can come up with. But all those words have significantly different meanings. Okay? So, when a translator is translating Hebrew, I mean, he has a multitude of definitions for a Hebrew word. Okay? So, when he's translating that, he has to understand, first of all, the intent of the author, what he's writing, who his audience is that he's writing to, the context in which it's being written to, and what, and try to figure out what he's writing about. Okay? And if he misinterprets that, it becomes a very, very different meaning in there. Okay? So that's where we're going to start here. So, so words are used very intentionally in the Bible. Okay? To know, for example, the word yada is the Hebrew word for to know. Okay? Or knew or to know. In, in that word, um, you'll see here, I wrote down the defin all the different definitions for the word yada there. To know, used in great variety of senses, figuratively, literally, euph euphemistically. But it means to know, recognition, acknowledge, uh, advise, answer, appoint, be aware, Awares, comprehend, consider, cunning, declare, be diligent, discern, discover, endued with, familiar, friend, famous, feel, can have, be ignorant, instruct, kinsfolk, kinsman, uh, cause to let make known, come to give, have, take, take knowledge, have knowledge, uh, to be, make, make to be, make self known, be learned, lie, lie by man, mark, perceive, privy to, regard, have respect, skillful, show, can, uh, man of skill, be sure of, assurity, teach, can tell, understand, have understanding, will be, and to know sexually. That's a lot of different definitions for one single word. Okay, see what I mean about how lucky we are with English? <laughs> All right. Now, there are two primary verb tenses used for sexual encounters used inside the Bible. There are a couple of other words, but these are the two primary words, okay? Yada and Shakab. okay? Yada is used like over 600 times in the Old Testament in sexual references. For example, Adam knew Eve, Abraham knew Sarah, Jacob knew Rachel, things of that nature. Okay, um, and that's and that's not to say that the 
and, and in almost every respect that it's it's done in a relationship or in a relationship type of setting, like a marriage setting or something of that. That's not to say that there are not uh, exceptions to that rule because there are a couple of places where where they are. Um, for example, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of the concubine that we just covered. The, the word yada is used in those two examples there. Um, now, shakab, the word shakab means to lie down, rest, take rest, sleep, stay, lodge, cast down, make to lie down with, make to sleep with, and ravish. Or you could say rape for ravish is another word. Um, and I'm on the back page here, I've given a couple of examples of where shakab is used. Okay? Come, let us make our father drink wine. In Genesis 19, this is the story of Lot and his daughters. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie, or shakab with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in to, and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they make their, their father drink. Basically, they went in and they raped their father. Okay? Dinah and Shechem in Genesis 34, where Shechem rapes Dinah and violates her. Uh, and then, ja uh, the, then Jacob, the sons of Jacob, find out about Dinah's violation. And they get upset. Uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, where Potiphar continually tries to get Joseph to um, lie down with her. It's used continuously throughout that whole story. Uh, and then Mo in Mosaic Law, but if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, the man forces her and lies with her. Then only the man who lay with her shall die, you know. Um, in Deuteronomy, if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Um, uh, Am, and when Amnon rapes his sister Tamar, it's used there. And then in Isaiah, it talks about their children uh, will be dashed to pieces before their eyes and their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses raffled, and the women ravished. And these are just a few examples. Um, uh, when it's not used in reference to rape, but still used in a sexual reference, it is always referencing some sort of adulterous relationship, like David lay with his wife Bathsheba. Okay, it doesn't recognize Bathsheba in a normal, normal relationship like Abraham and Sarah or something like that, or Potiphar's wife in his numerous attempts. Abimelech's admonishment to Abraham when Abraham presented his wife, uh, Sarah, as his sister, and Abimelech admonished him, what, 
what would have happened if someone had lain with her. Okay? Uh, and then Reuben lay, laying with his father's concubine. So the, the, important, the important thing here um, is that when you're using these verb texts here, uh, t these verb tenses, I, I wanted to point out the difference between the, the yadas and the, the sexual references and how they're used. Because in Leviticus 18, uh, 18, 13, and Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18, 19, and Leviticus 20, 13, which is, states, a man shall not lie with a man as he does with a woman, uh, for it is an abomination. And, and, it, and the other one says, adds on, they shall surely be put to death. It's using the word shakab in there as well. Okay? So, um, and there's a reason that I'm getting to that. Okay. Oh. Yeah. All right. So next, we're going to pass these out. All right. So next, before we get to the, the, the Leviticus passages, I want to start at the beginning of Leviticus 18, where because I think that's important that we, we get there first. Um, it's because you just don't start in the middle of a chapter and pluck out a verse here and a pluck, pluck out a verse there. So let's go to the very beginning where it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do, and, and according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances, you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. Now, what he, what he starts to do from that point on is he, he starts listing all of these thou shalt nots, okay? Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. Thou shalt not do all of this. He lists, goes and lists a whole bunch of things. I'm about to bring you into this land. Do not take up these customs. Do not take up these, these roles and stuff. Okay? So, as we're, go as we're going in there, um, all right, yeah, okay. Wanted to just make sure I was in the right place. Okay. So, so he's going in there and he's giving all of these things. And we finally come to Leviticus 18.22, where it says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Okay? But let's go ahead and finish it out at the end of Leviticus 20 where he says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation, which I am casting uh, out before you. For they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I have said to you, You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean, and you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Okay? Some of the other things that are included in between the Leviticus 18 and the Leviticus 20 closing are... Do not make your hard workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gospel among your people. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Do not mate two different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two different kinds of seeds. Do not wear clothing woven from two different kinds of thread. Do not eat meat that has not been drained of its blood. Do not trim off the hair of your temples on your temples or trim your beards. Do not mark your skin with tattoos. Stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death, such as a person is guilty of a capital offense. You must therefore make a distinction between ceremonially clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. We just read that, okay? One of the things that we need to understand, I'm going back to the Levitical passages now with 18 concerning the, a man shall not lie with a man as he does with a woman. Um, this, this, Jewish historians, we're, we're not going to go with Christian historians, we're going to go with Jewish historians, okay? Because the Jews wrote the Old Testament. And I think it's interesting to rely upon Jewish historians who have a better understanding, in my opinion, of, of their own text. Jewish historians read the Levitical passages of 1822 and 2013 from a different lens than Christians do. Um, for they don't read it as homosexuality and being in homosexual relationships. They actually read it as rape. Okay? They see, and so. They, you say, well, what does that mean? A man shall not rape a, a, a man as he does a woman? Well, you have to understand Near Eastern culture back in those days. Near Eastern culture, one of the things that he's warning about, and that's one of the reasons I had us read the beginning of Leviticus 18 and the ending of Leviticus 20. He's warning us as we go, he's warning the people as they go into these lands to not take up the customs, to not take up the traditions of these lands, okay? To the, one of the common threads that they did throughout the, the, the Near Eastern culture was when they went into a land and they conquered the people, they would rape the women, including the Jews. The Jews would take the young girls and they would rape them and take them as their wives. They would kill the, they would kill the, the men and the boys and, and the women. But the Near Eastern cultures not only would go in and 
take the men as slaves and the boys as slaves, but they would also rape the men and the women both. The men would be raped as a sign of humiliation and as dominance. So one of the, the so Jewish historians see this as a sign of rape, taking up their culture as being uh, of taking the men and raping them like they would the women. So, and, and there's references here that I'm giving to that. Uh, biblical, uh, this is from the Jewish Study Bible, actually. Biblical and ancient Near Eastern culture was not familiar with homosexuality in the sense of a defined sexual orientation or lifestyle. It acknowledges only the occasional act of male anal intercourse, usually as an act of force associated with humiliation, revenge, or subjugation for the biblical examples, see Genesis 19, 4 through 5, or Judges 19, 22. Of the biblical legal collections, only H mentions it here in 2013, declaring it to be an abominable act and a capital offense. Um, Hebrew scholar Cynthia R. Chapman in her book, The Gendered Language of Warfare in the Israelite-Assyrian Encounter, talks extensively of the Near Eastern culture's prevalence for male dominance and humiliation by raping men as they conquered their cities. This was a prominent feature and custom throughout the whole region. Even the Jewish armies raped the young virgin girls as spoils of war. Um, and in light of this, uh, most Jewish scholars read Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013 through a completely different lens than that of Christian scholars. They believe the mandate here is a man, uh, man shall not rape a man as he would a woman. It is an admonishment to not take up the customs of the people that God is about to give you victory over. This is their way, not my way. It is an abomination. So I chose to give this perspective because it is not one that is often presented as much, but I feel it deserves to be heard. So I'm not saying it's necessarily the correct viewpoint, but I, I think it, it deserves to, to be warranted. And um, I'm going to close it with... Uh, um, uh, passage from Daniel A. Uh, Hellman X, what the Bible really says about homosexuality. Among the early Israelites, as Leviticus sees it, to engage specifically in male-male intercourse was to mix the roles of man and woman. See, such mixing of kinds was an abomination. It was impure like sowing two different kinds of seed in a field or making cloth from both cotton and linen. In a primitive and superstitious way of thinking, the impurity of this sexual offense was serious enough to possibly defile the whole land. Israel was concerned not to lose the territory that it had struggled so hard to possess. Defile the land and you might lose it. Losing the land because of uncleanliness among the people was too much to risk. The penalty for such risky behavior had to be severe, like a broken seal of a sterile medicine. One unclean act could defile the whole people. The flaw must be corrected. The betrayer must be eliminated. The land must be preserved. Hence the death penalty. But such thinking has nothing to do with male, male sex today. I know that's a lot to digest, and I, I did a lot of reading. I'm sorry. This is Jason again. I'm just going to jump in here to mention that uh, at this point, uh, Warren made a comment in the class, uh, but he was off mic. So I'm going to try to summarize basically what he said before continuing. So Warren made a comment about how common thinking is that scriptural interpretation should be simple and that if all of these handouts are needed, perhaps 
uh, all of these handouts and explanations uh, are searching for searching the Bible for something that simply isn't there. Uh, but that kind of misses the point. And so maybe uh, scriptural interpretation is not as simple as we may think. Uh, ancient language in a different part of the world, uh, a complete, completely different culture. Uh, these factors are, are real and separate us from uh, the original writers and readers of the text. And if we fail to realize that about this or any issue, uh, we're, we just aren't engaging with the Bible in a way that is true to what Scripture is. So Scripture requires that kind of explanation in a modern context. Also, uh, Warren mentioned that what God is doing throughout the Bible is calling people forward to a new way of understanding love and uh, engagement and our encounters with others in a way that is loving and honoring of other people in ways that may seem radical at the time, but fit perfectly into the liberation theology of love. And so uh, I think that that kind of summarizes, I hope that summarizes Warren's comment. And so now I'll continue with uh, the rest of the class. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things about about scriptures that a lot of people don't understand, um, especially for lay people, is that um, without a without a real understanding of of the cultures and the time and the periods uh, there, it's so easy to misunderstand scripture. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up Catholic or there and and I'm I'm not anti-catholic or anything but one of the things that the catholic church used to teach was that the masses were too ignorant to to under to to be able to understand the bible on their own they needed to be taught and the dangers of that is that you know who who determines what the truth is and who determines what uh what you get you you know what 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 you are to understand it's one person makes that decision so i believe in, that the bible should be available to the masses and things like that but it's also open to so many different interpretations it's why there's 35,000 different denominations of christianity in the world and they all think they have the truth you know so um so we we have to be able to um be open-minded to be able to read and understand scripture from uh from uh, with an open mind from the lenses of how it was written and how it's supposed to be intended and it's open to be it's 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 a living breathing document you know that that a lot of it i don't think necessarily applies to today in the sense that it was written like the old testament laws don't apply in the sense you know how, how many people are wearing a hundred percent cotton right now you know you know so so you know if 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 if, that, if those laws apply right now then uh we're you're you're sinning you know in those in those types of in that type of perspective um so we we just need to apply it wisely and we need to apply it uh, gracefully Jesus, Jesus said that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And these two commandments 
all the laws of the prophets fulfilled. And as long as we're doing that, I think we're living in a, we're fulfilling the, we're fulfilling the law of God and we're fulfilling the law of Jesus.